Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. Today we're going to be talking about supplements again. Uh, I guess a slightly different context than our last mm-hmm. episode supplements that are overrated, underrated, and then I guess some broad red flag categories. So starting broadly here, what are things that people need to be aware of, red flags of supplements, supplement companies, Mm -hmm. supplement stacks, all those good things? I guess the first thing to be aware of, and this is a red flag for any supplement, is supplements are actually pretty similar to medications. They have pharmacodynamic effects, pharmacokinetic effects, Pharmacodynamic is the drug's effect on the body. We are fans of mechanism of action, as uh, many of our uh, colleagues and friends are, because when you know the mechanism of action, um, you are able to uh, know the scientific backing behind the supplement. So past that, uh, another red flag would be taking a supplement for something that you would really need a lifestyle change for. On this podcast, as we like to say, we give you the tools to develop a balanced approach to health. Um, taking two or three dozen supplements, perhaps for some people might be okay if they don't get any pill fatigue in very specific circumstances. But in general, you want to take supplements that have the highest efficacy and least downside. So um, that, and again, that could be said for any supplement, um, but we should probably get into other categories, for example, proprietary blends. Yeah. So knowing what your specific target is, like you're talking about these people that are taking several dozen supplements, a lot of times they just heard something, started taking it, and they don't necessarily have an indication. Just like um, you'll see the same thing in polypharmacy when people just get put on medications and after a while they they stop knowing, like, oh, well, I don't know what I take this for. And then doing a medication reconciliation, a lot of times you can eliminate unnecessary medications. And we do a similar thing with supplements. A lot of times we can eliminate unnecessary supplements that people may be spending significant amounts of money on. So I I agree with what you said about knowing the sort of scientific basis, how something works, because then not only do you have a stronger foundation of evidence, but you can predict what the side effect potential may be, which oftentimes isn't well studied or documented in the supplement literature. Mm -hmm. So I think that's interesting, but proprietary blends are an interesting one. What possible advantage could a company having a proprietary blend provide the consumer? Because if I'm somebody who wants to look at the supplement I'm taking, I'd kind of like to know whether I'm taking 10 milligrams of something or 1,000 milligrams of something. Yeah, it's hard to know what the advantage to the consumer would be from a proprietary blend. Um, Even if you're trying to hide it from other companies, Someone from another company can take that supplement and have it analyzed, and then they can see what all is in the supplement and what all is not in the supplement. Some companies do post their batch by batch um, criteria, so they actually test them, and whether it's higher, lower, or the exact same of what is stated, they post that, and you can look it up by buying their supplement and then going to their website and checking your batch number. So that would be an example of a green flag 
whereas a red flag would be a proprietary blend where the active ingredient might have an extremely low amount, but you just don't know that. Yeah, I really like the concept of transparency, whether that is listing out each individual ingredient and how much of it is in the product or posting, not just saying, hey, we do third-party testing, but actually posting the results of that and yes. tracking it along with um, the individual supplements, just like there are you know, pharmaceutical companies where you can plug in your you know, batch number um, online, that sort of thing. It's, um, I guess, much more rigorous quality control. Mm-hmm. And another, I guess, sort of a proprietary blend where you do know what you're taking, but it is a blend of supplements. Uh, I see this a lot of times with cleanses or yes. supplement stacks that I kind of alluded to earlier. So, you know, someone goes to a website, um, you know, maybe their health influencer sends them that way and you have this, okay, this is your testosterone optimization stack or this is your gut health stack or, you know, this is your cognitive stack. And there could be two or three dozen ingredients just in those few supplements that are part of that stack. So how could you know if that's going to help everyone's gut? Because the more evidence that comes out, it seems like the more complicating the gut microbiome is. Yeah, um, individualized medicine, unfortunately, is complicated. And there's a very high demand for it, every individual that's living, and a relatively low supply for it. In general, if there is a, a special or secret protocol, or there's a, a, our friend Derek likes to call them cookie cutter regimens. And it's absolutely true. Um, cookie cutter regimens often have lots of unforeseen downsides because you're not thinking about the downsides in every individual and then much less upside than the one person who it really worked well for. Oftentimes these blends, even if they're not proprietary blends, they have more than five ingredients and they usually worked really well for whatever influencer happened to try it first. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. So just like there's a lot of people out there doing things that there's a high demand for, um, the quality of the service is not always particularly high. So there's a lot of interest in supplements. There's a lot of interest in hormone optimization and hormone therapies, but there's not a huge supply of people doing it well. But anytime there is a demand, there are people that are going to try and go in and capitalize on that. So I guess like we talked about, some of the green flags for supplement companies are ones that have been around for a long time. We talked about that on the last episode. Ones that do third-party testing, even better if they post those third-party testing results. Even better if they sell more single-ingredient products and not proprietary blends necessarily. And when they do have a multi-ingredient, aside from perhaps a multivitamin, it doesn't have a laundry list of ingredients. Yeah, Um, there's kind of a recurring theme that a lot of the green flags and red flags for supplements are also true of medications. So another one would be your healthcare provider or health coach or whoever is recommending this, your influencer is not making any money or at least any significant money um, off any supplement or medication. That would be a green flag. A red flag would be if they are. Um, Another red flag would be if they are closely affiliated with a company and that affiliation has changed um, like how they feel about a certain supplement. Yeah, because at the end of the day, people are going to be able to be incentivized, you know, saying money makes the world go round. I mean, clearly there are people who have, you know, better or um, worse morals and ethics when it comes to those sorts of things. So if you see like a a 180 in the way that someone approaches supplement, perhaps someone used to be 
a pro or anti-supplement and now they're very pro-supplement. Like yeah. there, there may be some underpinning there if there's some financial conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. And an analogy, I just thought, you know, with these supplement stacks, it's like, if you look at the general population, um, okay, you know, most people are overweight, um, hypertensive, insulin resistant. Um, so should we give all of those people a polypill? Everyone in the general population, because it would help the majority, right? So let's put some uh, metformin in there. Metformin, let's put some yep. Adipex for weight loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's put something in there for blood pressure. Um, what else could we put in there? Um, something to lower, too. something to lower cholesterol. Yeah, a so statin. People just put in that. five different medications, <laughs> <laughs> and then if you give it to the general population, probably some people will see a dramatically positive shift in their blood work. Mm-hmm. Some people will probably have a host of side effects, yep. and some people will continue to become more ill if they're not making lifestyle changes mm-hmm. because end of the day a lot of medications are um, risk reduction or damage mitigation you know because we're trying to steer people back towards health and it's not to say the medications are necessarily bad but supplements can kind of be thought of as the same in the same yeah. way like let's talk about one that is commonly used for fatigue or stress uh, people want to take a pill to be more resilient to stress instead of sort of fixing the underpinnings so there's yeah. been a, a lot of un, uh, I guess a lot of recent attention about something called Rhodiola, which surprisingly doesn't seem to have a lot of data, either preclinical or clinical data. Yeah, rhodiola is a supplement that has been around for a long time. It's in traditional medicine, both Arudavaic and Chinese. Um, it grows in the Indian subcontinent and in um, Tibetan China. But there are studies dating uh, many decades back. And as we mentioned earlier, we are a fan of mechanism of action. Um, and there are a few different components of rhodiola that um, may be responsible for the mechanism, but they're not particularly well characterized. And these studies in humans really have not panned out as you would expect them to be, especially given that there's been at least five decades to repeat these studies. Yeah. And there are some, like, I suppose the most compelling study was a single arm open label study. So there's no placebo group. Yep. And then you're having, I, I presume it's it's the same group of people coming back and taking a similar test at six weeks and 12 weeks. So the question is, is that supplement actually working or are they just getting better at taking the test? Um, because that's something with, you know, like IQ tests or cognitive tests, you know, if you're looking at people with uh, mild cognitive impairment, if you gave them that same test every single day, they're just going to get better at taking the test. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are some of the considerations there. And even the authors, they're responsible in these where they say, hey, you know, this needs to be validated with a double blind randomized controlled trial. Yeah. And even when you look at the systematic reviews, which are farther down on the, the you know evidence pyramid, you know, they should be carrying more weight than this you know, single arm study. Um, they say that the results don't necessarily or aren't necessarily repeatable. So you may have one where, you know, it really decreases levels of stress and improves energy. And then another one where it increases fatigue. And, you know, I will say that I have recommended rhodiola for patients before because we do have data supporting that it can improve energy levels in this in the setting of fatigue and it can improve stress resilience. But the data there is not quite as strong as I would like it to be. I would love to see more research and find out which of these specific 
plant components is responsible for those effects. No. But some of the data, it's kind of all over the place. You see somewhere it would look like, wow, this seems to be a very harmful compound when you look at the solidicides on the study that you found earlier. Yeah, solidricides and rosavins are the two main active ingredients. And with the solidricides, it's interesting because, um, and this is true of any adaptogen, by the way, that's not well characterized when it comes to mechanism and the active ingredient, but they study it and it increases things like uh, in the Petri dish, not in human or animal models, but interleukin-6 and um, you know a, a lot of other inflammatory markers or cytokines. So you don't think that, that would be particularly good for being neuroprotective. So perhaps not the solidricides. There was one study, I can't remember if it was on solidricides or rosavins. I think it was on solidricides at a slightly higher standardization than normal, perhaps 3% instead of 1%, but it was from 1968. And if you see this study being cited, then you should just keep in mind that this study is not available anywhere um, to access. Yeah, and it hasn't been replicated, um, but it is cited. It was you know a certain milligram amount of the solidricides, and it the placebo group actually had a over fifty percent improvement in like attention and focus, and you know, whatever the standard was at the time. I yep. mean, testing methods have gotten a lot better. Yes, is that close to fifty years now? <laughs> yeah, um, any time a placebo group has an improvement of really more than thirty percent improvement. Um, But one, it could just be a particularly strong placebo response, but more likely the way that they're assessing the improvement in function could probably be tweaked to where you wouldn't have such a strong placebo response. Um, That would very likely lower the um, response from the uh, experimental group as well. Yeah, those darn placebo groups just messing up the results all the the time. Yep. So I guess we have recommended this in the past for people. Um, it does be it does appear to be effective for some people, mm-hmm. but the evidence there, you know, is lacking. But I don't think that there have been significant safety concerns, uh, like with one we'll touch on later. Uh, you know, red yeast rice and correct. Arguably, with any supplement, you should be checking your liver enzymes frequently because there are you know contaminants from time to time, and you see these case reports where people do have like acute liver injury or elevated liver enzymes. You remove the offending agent and then things return to normal. And if you start 20 supplements at the same time, you know, you don't know what's causing the you yep. know, elevation benefits or side effects. Yep. Rhodiola reminds me a lot of another supplement that actually also comes from the highland, the Himalayan area. I hadn't thought of that before, but she legit, which comes from, it's basically black goo that they scrape off of the mountainside. There's fungal component, there's bacterial component, but this she legit has also many proposed active ingredients. It's also an adaptogen. However, it does have fulvic acid in it and you can standardize it to fulvic acid. And we do know the proposed mechanism of that, which is uh, removing tau tangles, which is in the brain. They can form neurofibrillary tangles or NFTs as we like to meet about. (laughs) But um, so I kind of see rhodiola as kind of similar to shilajit but without the fulvic acid, which mechanism is well characterized. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I guess another, this is kind of an easy one, but I still see this advertised, you know, get your B12 shot, 50 bucks, boost your energy. Yep. And this data has been out for quite some time now, but sublingual B12 is just as effective, if not more effective than the B12 shots. So, Mm. I mean, you could get 
a decade worth of B12 sublingually for the same price as a B12 shot. And then you've got the injection pain, the potential for infection doesn't happen particularly often, but yep. anytime you're doing an intramuscular injection, you do have the potential for site reactions, pain, infection, all these sorts of things. Yep, certainly also superior to getting an IV therapy of B12 and other B vitamins. Yeah, IV, the, the risks will go up even more. I, I saw a IV therapy for bloating the other day, which mm -hmm. I thought was interesting because what if a uh, congestive heart failure patient that tends to hold their fluid in their midsection comes in and wants to get rid of their bloating, give them an IV, you're going to have the exact opposite effect of what you would think. Now, the average person who's dehydrated and they're producing more, you know, ADH, you give them some more fluids. Maybe there's a net diuretic effect there because they're dehydrated baseline, but it just makes so much more sense just to drink water than to go in and have a water IV. Yeah. Um, another good example of individualized medicine, things that are great for IV therapy, potentially esketamine, uh, ketamine therapy, mm -hmm. potentially allopregnanolone, um, which is uh, basically trihydroprogesterone, um, things that need to be IV. And then B12 would be an example of something that probably doesn't need to be IV. Sometimes even electrolytes wouldn't need to be IV. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to get things into the system and really getting them into the cells is usually what we're looking at. What about this one? Um, DHEA to balance all your hormones. So balancing hormones is, a, I guess, a popular term now, um, but I don't think people quite grasp what exactly it means or which particular hormones necessarily need to be met. So do you have to balance your, let's say, you know, cortisol with your free T3? I mean, there is a ratio there, but is that what people are talking about when they talk about hormone balance? I think some of the more well-characterized ones are like, okay, there's like yeah, testosterone and cortisol or DHEA and cortisol. Even there's some natural push and pull there. Um, there's some balance of neurotransmitter hormones, like a natural push and pull between dopamine and serotonin. And yep. so there, there are examples of hormone balance out there, but I think that when the term is used in marketing, um, it, it kind of loses its meaning. Yeah. One of the interesting things about marketing DHEA for hormone balance is it's often marketed to perimenopausal females, which if you think about a perimenopausal female uh, and DHEA, by the way, can convert downstream to both testosterone and estrogen, but they usually have um, relatively high estrogen, the next most high testosterone, and then the least progesterone. Um, so if you give them DHEA, then you're really worsening the balance of their hormones rather than improving it. Um, another thing to keep in mind is that DHEA is highly, highly variable depending on the individual. Some people that are, are in adrenal pause or do have adrenal fatigue, they have very low DHEA. You measure it with DHEA sulfate. And perhaps in these people, and they are a better candidate for DHEA. You know, perhaps they're not a candidate for estrogen replacement or testosterone replacement, but they have an SHBG of 150. They have a DHEA sulfate of 20, and sometimes we do see this. Those individuals are great candidates for DHEA, whereas a poor candidate, maybe they have a gene and don't even know it for NCCAH, which is basically um, non-classical adrenal hyperplasia, where they produce a ton of it, and their level at baseline is 900, and then you give them even more and their acne gets even worse. It'd be interesting to see at a population level, uh, the people that are starting DHEA, how many of them actually have baseline blood work? Because if I go to a... I don't know, a, a med spa down the street here and 
they put me on a, let's say a hormone support stack. Like, is there any baseline blood work involved? Like at a population level, how often is that happening? But I was going to say the same thing about DHEA seems quite unpredictable. You know, some people have, you know, they've told me they started DHEA and had the worst acne of their life. Maybe they started at 100 milligrams. So, you know, you always want to start things lower as as a general rule. But yeah, the DHEA, it's just, you know, is that going to lead to more DHT in the skin, more estrogen in the skin, these things that we know can cause hormonal acne or increased oil production. And mm-hmm. like you said, it, it really doesn't fit the picture of creating a nice synergy or balance of hormones in the perimenopausal women that it seems to be marketed to. Now, yep. Arguably, I guess you could say you're having a little bit of a little bit of a positive effect on bone density there, but at the cost of kind of like, you know, shuffling the cards, right? So you're handing out cards and like, okay, what hand did everybody get? And this person's like, oh, well, I got um, less vasomotor symptoms and stronger bones. <laughs> what did you get? Just acne and rage. Yeah, uh, that's a good example. Um, and uh, some people point out that in some countries like Canada, DHEA is a prescription. And some countries like the United States, it is a supplement. Um, I think as long as there is public health intervention, such as people doing podcasts and talking about it, um, then people can reasonably use DHEA as it is safe, uh, as there's not many major side effects, a lot of minor side effects. So I'm not necessarily saying that it should only be a prescription, but prescriptions of it do seem reasonable. In some cases, people also know that I enjoy the work of Dr. Fernand Labry, who did a, a lot of research on DHEA. And I believe a few pharmaceutical companies he worked with also patented or attempted to bring a couple combo products, for example, of like selective estrogen receptor modulators with DHEA to market, which I think is very interesting. Um, Most of them did not pan out, by the way, but he was also in Canada. So, you know, the political landscape uh, when it comes to drugs does make a difference. And uh, again, these are just uh, supplements that might be overrated or underrated in this case, overrated. We still like DHEA, so keep in mind it's not a list of... Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Good and bad. Yeah. Uh, and next we have, this is another uh, hormone optimization supplement, uh, Fidocia Grestis. So we've talked about this. We've talked about the data that is there, uh, the data that is not there. So very few studies so far even in preclinical literature, and yep. still zero studies in humans on Fidocia grestis. But just like rhodiola, it has been used for a long time, not in traditional medicine, but in traditional herbal medicine as an aphrodisiac for fertility and all these sorts of things. And the most of the human data out there now is anecdotal, where people are getting some blood work and saying, oh yeah, it increased my luteinizing hormone and my testosterone, or just my luteinizing hormone went up, my testosterone didn't move, or, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't see anything happen. So looking at the the toxicity before, you know, we talked about sort of the dose equivalence. And really, if you're taking more than 
200 milligrams, that's a potential concern. And we talked about ways to potentially mitigate that. Um, but, you know, I had the question the other day that came through, how do I monitor for testicular toxicity? I suppose you could do a you know semen analysis, but mm -hmm. I, I don't know that there's a lot of people that are going to be doing that. And really, if you are using it on and off, like uh, kind of a cyclical regimen to, I guess, mitigate the risks, then, you know, you're not going to be able to see if you're inducing a toxicity. So mm -hmm. it's not the, you know, it's not my first go-to when I'm recommending like, hey, how do I boost my testosterone? Yep. But it can be used, uh, especially if someone wants to take a like, you know, kitchen sink approach because people have different risk tolerances. They say, well, I just want to take what is, you know, shown to it's studied for a long time. It's shown to be safe. Um, and, you know, I, I don't care if my testosterone only goes up a little bit. It's like, okay. Uh, so other people may be like, I want to take you know, everything potentially that could increase my testosterone. Yes. And then, you know, there's probably a list of 10 things there and you kind of narrow down the list and you know, some people are going to still go out and take those 10 things and they just say, hey, I just want to have my health monitored. So like I said earlier, checking regular blood work is very important whenever you are looking at anything like that. Someone who's using a lot of supplements or starting a new supplement, really they should be getting things checked probably every three to four months, maybe every six months if they've been on things for a long time. Yes, uh, also thank you for calculating that dose equivalency. There's uh, formulas that you use for converting uh, dosing in rodent studies to human studies. And I believe you are the first and only one to actually look at that um, before making any sort of public statement on Fidocia crestus. <laughs> so uh, thank you for doing that. And again, that's 200 to 300 milligrams. Um, the dose equivalent in the rodent studies did not have toxicity and that specific toxicity. And again, people can go listen to our Fidocia and Tomcat podcast to hear more about this. Um, past that, they had elevation in um, different intracellular enzymes. These enzymes are in their liver. They're also in the testes. Two of them are called alkaline phosphatase, and you can check this on blood work. And we do on patients that are on Fidocia, especially if a patient happens to be on more than 300 milligrams or more per day. Um, and then also GGT, which is gamma glutamyl transferase. So the higher baseline levels of enzymes, these of these enzymes that you have, it is likely that Fidocia will not work as well. Um, and the lower baseline level of enzymes that you have, and also likely the lower your baseline LH, the more it can potentially help. So it's, uh, in my opinion, it's something that you definitely want to get labs before, during, and after use. And you should keep in mind the benefit and limitations. That being said, we have seen a lot of individuals with relatively low starting LH and even testosterones. And while on Fidocia, their LH has increased significantly. So that's kind of something that we like about it is there's an effect that at this point, given its historical context and the um, anecdotal use in traditional medicine and also what we have seen, it does seem extremely likely that that is a benefit. Exactly. There are benefits there. There's a compelling case for it. But again, we think that it is a bit in the overrated category yes. just because of the sparse data. Yep. It seems like every company is coming out with one of these supplements literally just because they heard Huberman and Joe Rogan talk about it. So. <laughs> All right. The next one on the list is resveratrol. So I guess we could um, role play that we're at a GlaxoSmithKline meeting. Um, <laughs> let's talk about resveratrol. Yeah. So resveratrol has a ton of compelling evidence that you would have to drink way too much wine to ever get any benefit from it. 
And that's resveratrol. That's pretty much it. There's, there's of course, resveratrol supplements as well. Some people point out that it's absorbed better with fat. It is an antioxidant. It is just one antioxidant. But um, the studies that were done on this initially looked very promising and it hasn't quite panned out. For example, we're not taking, we're not putting patients on prescription medication with resveratrol in them right now. Right. So I think the, the marketing here, the hype was about slowing aging and reducing the harmful effects of our you know, processed food, elevated calorie diet, which it seems to do quite well in mice, less so in humans. You know, I've yet to meet a person who has lived off of a caloric surplus um, and been healthy and not had any ill effects from that because they were taking resveratrol. Mm -hmm. Now, there are a couple of things resveratrol has been shown to do. Uh, I guess you could make the argument if someone's a type 2 diabetic, they take a significant amount of uh, like trans resveratrol, like mm. 500 milligrams, then reducing their A1C from nine to between seven and eight, like this six month trial in particular show, they are reducing their rate of cognitive aging and tissue aging to some yeah. degree. But for the person who is already doing a lot of the right things, then it doesn't seem to have that same promise because it's really the glucose that's doing yep. the damage and you're normalizing that as opposed to, you know, um, giving yourself a lower aging baseline. Yeah. Um, it's one of those supplements that is very helpful for a relatively small percentage of the population, but it just didn't pan out as a magical anti-aging cure-all for everyone. Yeah. And it might be useful in high androgen states. So there are some studies with you know, like PCOS, for example, mm -hmm. but these are using really high doses of resveratrol that I don't personally think are cost effective. I think there's better options out there. So like a gram of resveratrol is pretty costly, yeah. um, but it will significantly reduce androgens in conditions like PCOS yeah. or congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Um, so it can have kind of a modulating effect there, but you know, at a, at a significant financial cost. And then I'll see a lot of time people are like, oh, resveratrol improves cognition. And there might be some studies out there with the uh, mice learning their mazes and things like that, but it improves cerebral blood flow in humans like at, at a substantial dose, which isn't a bad thing, but that was specifically not accompanied by any improvement in cognition. So that actually hasn't been proven in humans at this point. Maybe some people take it and they feel like their brain is running better and that's fine. It does have a pretty good safety profile. Um, but some people may be, you know, I guess unknowingly lowering their net androgens when that is you know, perhaps not a desired outcome for that person. An older individual for cerebral blood flow, then perhaps something like a, a low dose Tadalafil could be a better option. And individuals with androgen dominance or PCOS, perhaps other things like inositol could be a better option. And for those looking at like antioxidants or just a general all-purpose supplement um, to prevent neurodegenerative disease, perhaps she legit could be a better option. So um, it's not a terrible supplement. It, it's just not particularly cost-effective and there's better options in um, most of its potential therapeutic benefits. Yeah. And another one that's sort of come along and I guess gets lumped into the, the same sort of anti-aging category, which is another term that you know, I guess you could say, you know, system decline or making a system behave like a younger phenotype is a type of anti-aging. Mm -hmm. But uh, there is like NMN um, and NR, these NAD precursors. So I, you have some really interesting thoughts and we've chatted about these and their potential cancer risks in the past, I believe. Yep. But in general, 
um, why are these overrated? Because they weren't they weren't even being studied until fairly recently, I think is one reason, but what are yep. some of the others? One of the reasons they're overrated is because the, uh, I guess the media hype machine has talked about them so much. They're all over the news. People like to take them in very high doses. And um, there's a lot of claims that have been translated from rodent studies very quickly. For example, um, the uh, like ovarian health in rodent studies or the insulin sensitivity and in insulin clamp studies. Um, and some people will take higher and higher and higher dose and think that more is better. An example of a high dose would be like two or three grams. It's an extremely high dose. Even one Sounds gram. Sounds quite expensive too. Yeah, even one gram is pretty high. It's very expensive and there's a lot of other options. So we know even taking niacin, which is vitamin B3, does increase the um, sequela. So niacin is a precursor to nicotinamide riboside, which is a precursor to nicotinamide mononucleotide, which is a precursor to NAD+, which is a precursor to ATP. Um, so there is likely a lot of better options. On the converse, there is, um, despite it being pretty new, um, there is a decent amount of studies in various things, but we haven't seen any studies on NR or NMN on uh, something that starts with lipoprotein and ends with little a. So we would actually be kind of most interested in uh, at least like a case control series on this. So if there's a company that wants to partner with us for that, let us know. <laughs> but um, yeah. it, still that being said, it's overrated. Yeah, and the reason for the sort of speculation on our end on the lipoprotein little a is that niacin has been shown to reduce this a bit. Yeah. Niacin itself has not panned out in the cardiovascular outcomes looking at HDL or LPA lowering, but um, NMN would potentially have a better side effect profile as it relates yes. to insulin resistance because with higher doses of niacin that are needed to potentially lower LPA a little bit, then you'd start to see insulin resistance as a potential side effect. And, and it causes a lot of flushing as well. So try, <laughs> try taking two grams of niacin versus two grams of NMN or NR. This sounds like a new TikTok trend, the niacin challenge. Yes. It would be relatively safe. So if somebody does want to post that in a TikTok and give us credit, of course, um, <laughs> we would love that. Uh, and some of the things that have been proven with NMN uh, in like insulin resistant perimenopausal women, it improves insulin sensitivity, mm -hmm. not on a metric you can see with hemoglobin A1C or fasting glucose. But if you hook someone up to the euglycemic insulin clamp and do a study on them with NMN, you see that they're using a little bit less insulin to metabolize, dispose of the glucose. Mm -hmm. um, it improves walking speed in the elderly. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to be put something that could be potentially a part of a multi-supplement protocol for um, optimizing you know, cognitive function in the elderly, especially with those with some new neurodegenerative disease. But that hasn't been you know, proven that it's NMN and NR having these profound effects like you know, the, the mice on the treadmills that just keep on running and keep on running and keep on running. Mm -hmm. Improving walking speed is, it's a benefit, but it's not anywhere near the magnitude of what we saw in the preclinical literature, which is often the case. Yeah. And I try to give people rules of thumb because we don't want to say just everything is individualized. Um, sign up for our clinic and we'll give you the perfect regimen. Of course, okay if you do. But um, just like we say, Tonkat Ali might be particularly beneficial in people with relatively low fasting insulins and a caloric deficit, 
with low IGF-1, low growth hormone. NMN is potentially more useful, as you mentioned in the older age category, they tend to have, um, well, they don't always have lower fasting insulins, but lower IGF-1s, less growth hormone, less growth agonism signaling, um, lower NAD levels, worse mitochondrial function, and part of that just comes with age. Um, but perhaps they have, um, you know, less CoQ10, less carnitine, less creatine, other things that are going to be able to fuel the mitochondrial function. In those individuals, NMN or NR might be kind of a happy medium. You're not just starting them on HGH, even though they're not deficient, the reference range for IGF-1 goes very low. So if you look at an 80 year old individual, you get their IGF-1 and it says 50, normal. So that person might be a particularly good candidate for an appropriate dose of NMN or NR. So the older an individual is and the more diabetic an individual is, the better of a candidate they might be for something like NR or NMN. Yes. But I think that's the opposite of the demographic that is most interested in NMN. Unfortunately, that seems to be the case. What about flaxseed? I uh, checked my omega-3s, let's say, and they don't look so good. So how much flaxseed am I going to have to drink per day to optimize my omega-3s? Probably a pound, <laughs> an extremely high amount. Um, yeah, so, so much so that it's not worth it as a replacement for omega-3s. There's other benefits of flaxseed, of course. But you're looking at uh, you know fish oil extracts or krill oil extracts or algae as your main omega-3 precursors. Yeah, and I think that the origin story of flaxseed having all these benefits actually goes back to like pro baseball in the steroid era, where you know they asked this person, "How are you hitting the ball 50 feet farther and hitting all these home runs and uh, putting on all this mess?" And I think one of the players said that he started using flaxseed oil, and that was. You're kind of like, oh, okay. And then maybe that's why flaxseed oil sort of took off. Now, the ALA component of there, we've talked specifically in our last yep. supplement podcast about why that might be beneficial. But if you're taking flaxseed to optimize omega-3s, we give that an overrated rating. There are other reasons to take it, but mm -hmm. part of our system here is if you're taking something and you're trying to optimize something that that supplement does not do very well, then that would be sort of a you know overrated claim that people try to make about flaxseed oil, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, another example of an overrated supplement is fish oil for preventing heart disease. There's a couple of reasons for this, but uh, one of the reasons is some people take it for bad cholesterol, but it doesn't really have an effect on cholesterol. It has an effect, potentially, if it has a lot of EPA, on triglycerides, and then triglycerides can secondarily affect a specific lipoprotein, which I'll call a specific type of cholesterol, um, which is small, dense LDL. Uh, if your triglycerides are really high, then EPA can affect that, which might affect the small, dense LDL. But it really has very minimal effect on LDL or ApoB in general, and they've compared it to other things that we know work very well for cardiovascular disease prevention. Yeah, and the data is still mixed there. You see, I think actually the majority of these larger trials with omega-3s, whether it's EPA or a combo of EPA and DHA, they have pretty minimal benefit in, in very specific populations. So people yep. that have these significantly elevated triglycerides or people who are at a very high risk for um, you know, a, a secondary event, another MI, mm -hmm. for example. And it may be because, like we've talked about before, the, the EPA carries a bleeding risk. So yep. maybe it's just making them less likely and putting them in a less thrombotic environment, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. 
Now, I think omega-3s are potentially great for lean mass preservation when yep. people are inactive, particularly in women. I think that effect was even a bit more pronounced. Mm -hmm. And I may have mentioned that or may have forgot to mention it on the previous supplement podcast for things like uh, combating neuroinflammation and some mental mm -hmm. health conditions. Yep. EPA seems quite promising there. There's been some studies that have been reproduced and even looking at which subset of these patients might benefit the most. Mm -hmm. So omega-3s are not a bad supplement per se, mm -hmm. but if you're like, oh, I don't want to take anything to lower my cholesterol, I'm going to take omega-3s to prevent heart disease, mm -hmm. meaning plaque in the arteries, yep. they're probably not going to have a substantial effect. It's not an alternative for having an effect on ApoB, one of the main causes of heart disease. It has many, many other benefits, as you mentioned. I think even dry eyes is occasionally a benefit, but um, it's one of those things where, uh, like a lot of biomarkers, we like to check omega-3s inside the cell, inside the red blood cell specifically, and then see what the level is. Because um, if you are deficient in EPA, then that is certainly a risk factor in and of itself. And if you're deficient in DHA, that's another risk factor. Um, uh, and you would be concerned with your neurologic health as well if you're deficient in DHA, especially if you're considering getting pregnant. That's kind of considered the pregnancy um, omega-3. So like a lot of things, we want to check it. Yeah, and I think that the omega-3, if I'm just looking at an omega-3 or omega-quant test, that's kind of a surrogate marker for that patient's dietary pattern, like yep. how healthfully or how unhealthfully they're eating. If we see omega-6s are sky high and omega-3s are low or low normal, like most of the population, then I think most of the benefit is going to come from changing that dietary pattern. But you can also push the omega-3s up for other reasons like we talked about. Yep. But if I am looking at heart disease, um, definitely not taking a statin, um, but I'm taking red yeast rice. And we hear this quite often, actually, yeah. that specific comment verbatim. Yeah, uh, it's kind of ironic. Red yeast rice has natural lovastatin. It actually has lovastatin in it, um, but it is not purified lovastatin. So you're not just taking lovastatin. So is it statin plus? Is it a mystery dose? <laughs> yeah, it is a bit of a mystery dose. Um, there's been a lot of study done on red yeast rice because it does contain lovastatin. So it seemed very promising, but the data just has not panned out. Um, and there's a lot of good alternatives to it. For example, uh, psyllium husk, plant sterols. Um, given the um, like various studies that have been done on red yeast rice, I think we pretty much never recommend it because it's potential liver injury, um, inflammatory marker status. Um, there's a lot of downsides to it. Yeah, I, I specifically would recommend people not take red yeast rice. Um, if it, a lot of people aren't even aware that they're taking a sort of statin, like the you know, molecular equivalent of a statin with your red yeast rice. And if you're going to take that, then why wouldn't you just take a touch of a much more specifically targeted statin and preferably a hydrophilic one? Yeah. Um, the lowest statin is actually lipophilic, so it crosses the blood-brain barrier easier. So uh, especially if you're um, uh, afraid of statins, then going with the hydrophilic statin makes a lot of sense. All right. I think that is the conclusion of our overrated supplements. I, I don't think we have any other ones on the list for the first episode of this. Like this could potentially be a series. Um, people you know, feel mm -hmm. free to comment and suggest what you think are overrated supplements or yeah. underrated supplements. 
Yeah. Um, and for the record, of these overrated supplements, I am personally taking more than one of them. So again, they're not good and bad supplements, but if some of this did hurt your feelings, please comment below and let us know so that we can have more engagement for the algorithm. Absolutely. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today.